Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 6. This is a lengthy chapter, but we are going to, by God's grace, work our way through the entire chapter. So I'm going to read the whole chapter. The, the most important thing we can do this morning is hear from God's Word. And so we, without apology, will read God's Word and read the chapter in its entirety. So 1 Samuel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then... Take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it in the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this great harm. But if not then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. 
And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help this morning, as we do every morning. Father, we ask for your help to understand the truth of your word. We know that if not for the life, death, and resurrection that stands of Jesus, that stands in our place, and your gracious sending of your spirit to dwell in all those who trust in his finished work, we would be unable to make any sense of what you have to say to us this morning. And so, Father, we call upon you. We plead with you to be at work in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the truth of your word, to awaken us to more of the glories of who you are. Father, I pray that we would see your sovereignty and your justice and your judgment in this passage. And I pray that we be reminded of our desperate need for the gospel and the good news of Jesus that can restore us and make us whole. And so, Father, I pray as I do every single week that you would help me. Father, I pray that you would guide my words, allow me to say uh, only what is true of you and what is true of your word, and that you would lead us and guide us into all truth this morning for our good and the glory of your name. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as many of you probably already know, one of the most important things to have for any house project is the right tools. So I don't know about you, but I often find myself in the middle of a project and I don't have the right tool, but I will try to make something work because I don't want to take my 25th trip to Lowe's or Home Depot or wherever it may be for that particular project. So a couple of years ago, our microwave went out over the oven microwave, bought a new one to install it. And let's just say the new end didn't want to line up because of this board across the back of the wall, and it just wouldn't fit. So, of course, the first tool you try is brute strength, right? <laughs> you just try to jam it over and over and over again. Surely, eventually, it's going to make its way in there. That did not work. So clearly, part of this board that's attached to the wall was going to have to be trimmed back. So next step, uh, I tried some kind of small little handsaw thing I have, and that did not do the trick. So then I tried some kind of chisel and a hammer to try to just chisel away the bottom of the piece of wood. I got some wood off, but it still would not fit. So I'm about, you know, two and a half hours into it at this point because I don't want to take a 20-minute trip to Lowe's and back. Eventually, I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to just give in and take the trip to Lowe's. And so I go and, I mean, I tried to, my, I have a Dremel also, and the, the blades I have were just burning the wood. It was, I mean, I, it, was, it was a long day. So I go and there's a, just this saw that attaches to the top of the Dremel, and it's an oscillating thing, and it sticks out. And it, I cut the wood away in about 15 minutes when I got back home from Lowe's, when I finally went, right? Because when you have the right tool, it just things work, right? If you, otherwise, you're just trying to force something to work that's not going to work. Well, here's the reality of the modern American church. We use all kinds of tools and methods that are the wrong tools for the task at hand. We use all kinds of wrong tools and methods that are the wrong tools and methods for the task at hand. Instead of just listening to what God's word says is able to break through the darkness of the human heart, we depend on what we think can break through the darkness of the human heart. And we try all kinds of mechanisms and tools and methods to do the job. And sometimes it's well-meaning, 
I mean, in fact, I think two of the most significant methods we can be tempted to depend on are proof and experience. We sometimes believe that if we can just provide an irrefutable argument of proof for the existence of God, then it's going to bring about immediate faith and repentance in the person we're talking to. If we can just make an, an academic argument, they're going to fall to their knees and trust in Jesus. So other times we believe that getting someone to experience the presence of God will convert them. Now listen, there is nothing wrong with what's uh, traditionally called apologetics, which means defending the faith. I'm not demonizing that. I think there's a role for that. There's nothing wrong with providing logical arguments and proofs for the existence of God and the reality of the resurrection, the trustworthiness of Scripture. Those are all good things to do. Nor is there anything wrong with creating an atmosphere where people are able to have the space to experience the presence of the Lord in a unique way. Those are not evil things. Those are not bad things in and of themselves. But we must see their shortcomings. We must see that those are not the tools and methods ultimately that God has given us to pierce the darkness of the human heart so that we can see the glories of Jesus Christ. God has said that is done through the proclamation of his word and the truth of the gospel. That is what saves people. That is what awakens people to the reality of who God is. And 1 Samuel chapter 6 is an important reminder why we need the light of the gospel to shine in our hearts, to awaken us from our spiritual slumber, to give life to our sitting, deadened souls, and to give sight to our spiritually blind eyes. If there was a chapter in the Bible I could pick to show you, to demonstrate to you people being shown clear and compelling evidence for the reality of God, their sin, his judgment upon them, this would be it. The people, the, the Philistines and the people of Israel are given clear and compelling evidence for the reality of God. They are shown the power and the presence of God among them, but neither of them responds as they ought to. And that leaves us with a lingering question. Why not? <laughs> Why wasn't the overwhelming proof that God showed the Philistines that it was his hand at work? Why wasn't that enough to change them? Why wasn't the powerful presence of God among God's people in the second half of chapter 6 enough to make them humbly bow before him in repentance? Why is it that by the end of chapter 6, we see both the Philistines and the Israelites coming out of this story essentially unchanged? They're the same people they are when the story starts. Ultimately, 1 Samuel chapter 6 is a warning to us about the depths of the darkness of the human heart and our desperate need for the right tool, namely the power of the gospel, to rip the veil off our spiritually blind eyes to allow us to see Jesus. So I want us to see how both powerful proof and powerful presence were not enough to get them where they needed to be. We're going to see his, when I say his, I mean God's, what he provided. We're going to see his powerful proof rejected, and we're going to see his powerful presence profaned by God's people. So let's look first at his powerful proof rejected. Look with me at verses 1 through 12, beginning in verse 1. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. Now let's just briefly remind ourselves of what has gotten us to this point. 1 Samuel began by chapters 2 and 3 telling us about just the wickedness of Eli, the high priest at the time, and his sons Hophni and Phinehas, and how they were just 
desecrating the sacrificial system by stealing sacrifices. They were terrible, awful men. Therefore, God brought a a man of God to Eli and said, I'm bringing judgment on your house. I'm bringing judgment on your people. Chapter 3, he says the same thing through Samuel. Look, I'm bringing judgment on your house, Eli. Your house is coming to an end. And in chapter 4, the Philistines gather themselves up against God's people. They defeat them. They kill about 40,000 people of Israel. So Israel says, hey, let's bring the ark of God in, and surely we will be rescued by the presence of the ark of God, even though they were unrepentant, wicked, rebellious people. And so God does not save them simply because the ark of the covenant is among them. And the Philistines gained victory that day. And it was a, the Bible says, a very great slaughter, 30 thousand soldiers were killed. Israeli soldiers were killed there in that battle. Hophni and Phinehas being the two sons among them. Eli, hearing this news himself, falls over and dies, fulfilling exactly what God said would happen. And the Philistines in that process capture the ark and they take it back with them to their country. And we are told then in chapter 5, what happens to the Philistines because of that? The ark of God is placed in the house of Dagon, their false god. Dagon falls, the statue falls to his face before the ark. They pick him up and put him back. And then the next day he falls down again, bowing down before the ark of God, except this time his head is cut off, his hands are cut off, laying on the threshold of the temple, demonstrating God's sovereignty over this, his victory over the Philistines. And then God brings his judgment and just ravages the people of the Philistines with death and with tumors. And every city the ark goes to is the same experience. It's death and tumors, death and tumors, death and tumors. And so we are in chapter 6, verse 1, and it says, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm a Philistine, I'm not waiting seven months to get rid of this thing. <laughs> right? That's a staggering number. I mean, like seven hours, seven days, but seven months of dealing with this just death and destruction and devastation and tumors breaking out on your people. But you see, we have to remember what their possession of the Ark of the Covenant represented. It represented their victory and the victory of their gods over Israel to simply turn it back over would be a symbol of defeat. So in their pride, they would rather have death and tumors than show that they are a defeated people to show that somehow they did not actually gain the victory. So they just stood and they took it for seven months. Pride is an ugly beast, is it not? But finally, after seven months, they reached a breaking point. And so God's word there in chapter 6 tells us that they gathered the Philistine priest and the diviners and they said, you see there in verse 2, what, what are we going to do with the ark of the Lord? And, and we need to send it back, but tell us what we need to send back with it. We are tired of this. We need to get rid of it. And it gets really interesting here because the priest and the diviners of the Philistines seem to give them decent advice. It's interesting what they say, the answer that these Philistine priests and diviners give. I mean, you see there, first they tell them they need to return a guilt offering to God that will cause them to be healed. Now, we'll get into the strangeness of what the guilt offering itself was, but for now, just think about this. At some level, the Philistines are admitting that they are guilty, that they deserved what happened to them, and they needed to offer a guilt offering as they sent the ark back to somehow try to appease this God so that this judgment would not continue to come upon them. So 
some level of admission of guilt happening from the Philistine priest and diviners. And so the people say to the priest, well, what are we going to send back with the ark? You see that in verse 4, what is the guilt offering we shall return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. And so why five? Well, we, we see that a little bit later in the passage. You saw that as we read in verses 17 and 18, there were five lords, five cities or five areas where this, this death and destruction and tumors came as the ark traveled from one place to the other. And so they thought sending back five of these things, five tumors and five mice would make up for would be a guilt offering to appease the God of Israel for what he had brought upon them. Now, it's strange, right? Why why golden tumors, right? It's just what every God wants, right? <laughs> what every special person in your life wants. Golden tumors. Well, you have to remember, these are a pagan people. They don't have a clue what God wants. And this is a significant reminder to you and I. We should be thankful that God has revealed himself to us in Scripture so that he knows what, so that we know what he wants from us. They're, they're just guessing. Maybe if we make some things in the likeness of what he struck us with, it'll work. Like this is wishful thinking. And so they construct these golden tumors, these golden mice. And so it, it seems like, like I said, it seems like good advice. And it, it goes on in verses 5 and 6. They say, look, perhaps, perhaps God will lighten his hand. Remember chapter 5 said his hand was heavy against them. So perhaps this will lighten his hand. He'll remove this from you. Verse 6, why? The, the, the Philistine priest and diviner say, Say, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? Don't be like them. They kept getting the, the ten plagues because they refused to let the people go. Like, don't be like Pharaoh. Don't be like the Egyptians. Instead, return the ark just as Pharaoh returned the people so that you can experience relief from the wrath that God has bring, is bringing upon you. I mean, this all seems to be sound wisdom and advice, but... Problem is, verses 7 through 9 show that even the priest and the diviners were not fully convinced that this was going to work. I mean, this is the real thrust of the section is verses 7 through 9, because even if you skip down to verse 9, you'll see that they say, I mean, we'll see if this works, because it could be that all this is just a coincidence. I mean, they're still not convinced that this is God's doing. They still think somehow it's one big coincidence. You know, like, if you take something you stole, the Ark of the Covenant, and you put it into the house of your false god, and the next day that false god is fallen face down on the ground, bow before the Ark of the Covenant, and then you put the god back up, and then the next day it falls down again in the exact same spot, bowing down face down, except this time it doesn't have a face because its head has been cut off and its hands have been cut off, and they're laying, lined up apparently on the threshold of the temple, and then you move the Ark from city to city, and every single city it goes to is is ravaged with death and tumors from spot to spot to spot to spot over and over and over again. But you know, it could just be a coincidence. It could just be a streak of bad luck. They're, they're, after that, they're still not convinced. And so they hatch a plan and they say, let's, let's just be sure that that's not enough. We're going to add we're going to add more. We're going to demand more proof from God, whether this is actually his doing or not. And so they hatch the plan in verses 7 through 9, and they put, they put barrier after barrier after barrier in the way to say that if this happens, it has to be God that does it. 
So, so this is what I want you to see, verses 7 through 9. Barrier number one. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart. All right, pause. So brand new cart that's never been used. And they're going to take two milk cows who have never in their life had a yoke, the, the device that's put on a cow or an oxen that attaches them to a cart or a plow or whatever it may be. These cows have never pulled anything in their life ever. Take those cows, put a yoke on them, hook them up to this brand new cart that has never gone anywhere. So that's, that's barrier number one they put in the way. Barrier number two, you see there at the end of verse seven, take their calves home away from them. Meaning these cows by instinct, by nature, are going to want to go back to where their calves are. By nature, by instinct, they're not going to leave their calves behind. So lock them up. So you're going to take two milk. So that's barrier number two. Barrier number one, two cows who have no clue how to pull anything. Barrier number two, leave their calves at home so they won't want to go anywhere. They're going to want to go back to Ekron, back where their calves are. And then barrier number three, verse eight, take the ark of the Lord, place it on the cart, put it in a box, at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then listen to what the end of verse eight says. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. Barrier number three, don't guide it. Don't walk with it. Don't point it in the right direction. Take Two cows that have never pulled anything, leave their calves at home, and just release them and see where they go. Three barriers they put in the way. Now, look, you could take two random humans and take their phone away from them, and they may not be able to find the grocery store, right? Right? You're taking two cows who don't have a clue where they're going. They don't have a clue. They don't know how to pull anything. Their calves are home. There's every reason for them to be home. This is the test they're putting before the Lord to see if this is a coincidence or not, that the Lord has brought this judgment upon them. Well, verse 10 says that the men, the Philistines, did exactly uh, what the priest and diviners told them to do. They, Verse 10, they took the two milk cows, they yoked them to the cart, showed the cows at home, they put the ark of the Lord on the cart, the box with the golden mice and the images of the tumors. And now listen to verse 12. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. I love, I just, I love verse 12. This is the author of Samuel saying, God wanted to leave no doubt in their mind. They put every barrier in the way possible. It doesn't say the, the milk cows in the cart wandered around and they stumbled upon Beth Shemesh. It doesn't say they eventually made it to Beth Shemesh. No, they hooked up these cows that had never pulled anything, left their calves at home, let them go to see where they were going to go. And they went on a beeline straight to Beth Shemesh. God could not make it more clear to the Philistines that this was his doing. Now, here's the key question. How did the Philistines respond to this overwhelming display of proof that the God of Israel is the one who brought judgment on them? Right? This is what they demanded from the Lord. If all of this happens, look, we, we can't refute it anymore. If this happens, it is God's hand on us. Dagon fell in the temple two times over. Uh, wrath came to every city the ark went to. The ark made it back, even though we put everything in its way. God has beyond doubt proven to us that it was his hand that was heavy upon us. Remember, they even admitted that they were guilty. They were returning a guilt offering. So here they are, all the proof that they asked for showing them that they are guilty before the living God. 
How did they respond to this overwhelming evidence and proof? Well, it seems that they did nothing. Verse 16 simply says they watched from the border of Beth Shemesh as the people received the ark, and then they went back home. There was no response like the people of Nineveh, right? When Jonah comes and warns them, and Jonah chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, the, the leader of Nineveh says, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. There just seems to be indifference. Now, you might say, Jonathan, you're assuming that. We don't know what they did. Well, if you just flip to chapter 7. Verse 13 says, And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. They never repented. They never turned away from their idol worship. In spite of the abundance of proof, remember what chapter 5 told us. To the day of the writing of 1 Samuel, they still honored the threshold of the temple of Dagon because his cut-off hands and feet laid there. They continued in their idol worship. They continued in their rebellion against the living God. Every bit of proof they asked for was given to them. It was a gift of God. He didn't have to do what they demanded of him. He's under no obligation to prove anything to the Philistines. But he did so. He showed them. He demonstrated, again, uh, uh, even though it was unlikely, uh, speaking naturally for those cows to make it home, he led them by his sovereignty over nature, over animals, over wildlife. He took them where they needed to go to prove to the Philistines that it was him that did this. And it still didn't overcome the darkness of their hearts. Why? Because all the proof and evidence in the world cannot pierce the darkness of our sin-stained hearts. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then here comes the good news in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God must shine in our hearts. The good news of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit must come into our hearts to awaken us from our spiritual slumber. There is no amount of proof or evidence that will convince any person lost in darkness of the realities of God. Now, you might say, really, that Jonathan, do you, is that really the case? Well, one of the best places to look at this is in Luke chapter 16. Jesus is telling the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Well, Lazarus was a poor man who sat at the gate of the rich man day after day, year after year. And the rich man never helped Lazarus, and they both die. And the rich man is condemned to hell. And Lazarus is in, it's in uh, Luke 16, calls it the bosom of Abraham, but it means in, in heaven. And in this story, they're allowed to communicate with each other. Jesus is telling the story. And the rich man who's suffering in hell says, just now he's the beggar. And he says, just let Lazarus just dip his finger in water just to relieve me from my suffering. And he says, no, the the chasm is too great. Your destinies are sealed. There can be no going back and forth between these places. And then the rich man says this. Listen to this. Luke 16, beginning of verse 27. The rich man says, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, namely Lazarus, who's dead. Send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment, right? Send him back to warn my family. But Abraham said, they, meaning your family, has Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. 
And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent, right? He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. God can literally bring a man back from the dead and stand in front of someone and warn them, and they will not believe if they're not willing to hear Moses and the prophets and the truth of God's word. You see, our faith ultimately, ultimately does not arise from evidence and proof. It comes from the powerful supernatural work of the Spirit of God through the power of his word. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it, namely the gospel, the proclamation of the good news, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Look, that doesn't mean that apologetics and defense of the faith can't support our faith, bolster our faith, help us understand our faith. Those are all good things. But apologetics is not going to save. The gospel saves. So be encouraged, saints. If you want to share the gospel with someone, you don't have to have all the answers to all of their questions. You don't have to have all the answers to all of their questions about evolution and morality and all the things they're going to want to throw in your face. If you want to be educated in those things and have answers to provide, great. But you don't have to have them because the ultimate question is, what are you going to do with Jesus? Let me tell you the good news and simply proclaim the gospel and trust it to do its work. It's what Romans 1.16 says. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is enough. It is enough. Additional warning. Many of us can be tempted to, to continue to demand signs and proof from God. But the reality of the darkness of the human heart that we see on display here in 1 Samuel 6 is you will likely just keep demanding more like the Philistines. You'll demand that God will provide it. You'll be like, oh, that's nice, but let me, let me give you another one. <laughs> right? Ultimately, ultimately, the question is, how do we deal with our sins before a holy God? And the answer is through the proclamation of the gospel, through the good news that Jesus willingly took on flesh and came and dwelt among us. And he lived a perfect righteous life in our place so that all who trust in him would be given his righteous life so that we will not be judged by our wicked, sin-stained, rebellious life. That he willingly laid down his life on the cross, taking the wrath and condemnation that you deserve and that I deserve in our place so that there is no judgment left for us because he is paid at all. And that even when they laid him in the grave, it could not hold him. And he victoriously rose on the third day and he has now ascended and he sits at the Father's right hand, interceding for us day by day. That is the good news that saves, brothers and sisters. And it's the good news that will sustain us. So no amount of proof will change hearts. The gospel, through the work of the Holy Spirit, is what can pierce the darkness. But listen, the Philistines aren't the only stiff-necked people in this passage. They rejected the powerful proof that God provided, but the people of Israel profaned his powerful presence. His powerful presence profaned. Look there with me at verses 13 through 21. Beginning in verse 13, it tells us that the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their harvest. They're out in their fields and they look up and here comes the ark of the Lord. They immediately apparently recognized it being carried by these two milk cows. And it says they they rejoiced. You see that there in verse 13. They rejoiced to see it. And the cart 
came into their field and they immediately respond to what seems to be a holy and good way. And it says they split up the wood of the ark and they offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the, the Levites, that's a key word there in verse 15. It is only the, 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 the priestly line of the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which were the golden figures and set it on this great stone that was there in the, in the field of Joshua. And it says they offer burnt offerings in verse 15 and sacrifices all that day to the Lord. It all seems like they're doing well. But until you really meditate on the details of what's happening here, what the Levites should have known, which is the sacrificial system and the law of God says, no, you sacrifice only male cows, not milk cows, showing a total disregard for God's law. Furthermore, you don't just sacrifice anywhere you want to at any time you want to, right? People were condemned over and over for sacrificing in the high places. We'll see throughout Samuel and and Kings, but they just do it right there in the middle of the field of Joshua. And we find out it seems that they did not, the Levites didn't do what they should have known to do, which is immediately cover up the ark. Because if you skip down to verse 19, it says, And he, namely God, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Now we just need to pause here and deal with uh, what are some potential translation differences that you may be looking at in your Bible this morning. So I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and there are two specific spots in verse 19 where other translations have significantly different translations. So in the ESV, uh, verse 19 says that this happened to the men of Bethlehem because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. Almost every other translation says they looked into the ark of the Lord, not upon the ark of the Lord. So that's Difference number one that we'll deal with in a moment. Also, the ESV says he struck 70 men of them. If you happen to be looking at a New American Standard Bible this morning, or if you're looking at a King James or a New King James Bible this morning, it says that God struck down over 50,000 of the men. And in fact, if you look at the footnote in your ESV at the bottom of the page, if your ESV has footnotes, it will say that most Hebrew manuscripts say this strange language that says 70 men, 50,000 men. And so uh, translators have to decide, what does that mean? 70 men, 50,000 men. There's all kinds of opinions about what it is. Maybe it's something about this many men per thousand men. Maybe it's 57,000 men. Maybe it's 70 men because surely 50,000 men didn't live in Beth Shemesh. This would have been a small village. So there's all kinds of speculation about what exactly happened and how many men were struck down. And I'm not saying it's unimportant to work our way through those kinds of things, but that's not what we're going to spend our time on this morning because here's the reality. Men were struck down. That's the point. And whether they were struck down for looking upon the ark or looking into the ark doesn't really matter. And let me tell you why. Either thing, looking upon or looking into, was punishable by death. When God gave his law in Numbers, when they would move the tabernacle, so they would have to take the tabernacle down, which means they had to remove the ark of God from the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle. Aaron and his sons, the high priests, were tasked with that. They were to go into the tabernacle. Numbers 4 tells us they were to go into the tabernacle. They were to take the veil that divided the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle. They were to take that veil and cover the Ark of the Covenant with it so that only the high priest could look upon the Ark. They were to cover it with the veil, that the veil that was ripped in two. 
when Jesus died. That veil was to lay over the ark. Not only that, it says they were to take a goat skin and cover the veil that covered the ark. Then they were supposed to take a blue cloth and cover the goat skin that covered the veil that covered the ark. And then Aaron and his sons were to take poles and slide them through the loops that were attached to the Ark of the Covenant so that the, the family of the Kohathites could carry the Ark, but they were to carry it by poles. They weren't to touch it. They weren't to look upon it. Numbers 4.15, they must not touch the holy things lest they die. Numbers chapter 4, verse 20, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment lest they die. So whether they looked into the ark or they looked upon the ark, both would have been punishable by death. And the Levites should have known better. They should have told every person standing there, look away, don't look, let us get it covered. Now it may be tempting to think of God as petty for striking down men for looking at the ark, but it's not petty because God is holy and he made his will clearly known to his people. It's not as if he struck them down with no warning. They knew the consequences of their actions, or should have known. That ark was to represent God's holiness, his very presence among his people. And they treated it as a common object. They profaned the ark of the Lord. And he therefore struck down these men, whether it's 70 or 50,000, how many ever he struck down, they all deserved it. He was just in his striking them down. They profaned the ark by their flippant approach to what is holy. They should have known better. So how did they respond? Well, they ask a good question in verse 20. It seems like Israel at this stage has a habit of asking good questions and giving really bad answers, right? Remember in chapter four, they asked the question, what shall we do? Why were we defeated this day? Bad answer. Let's just bring the magic ark among us, right? Good question. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? That's a question we all need to ask this morning. This is the holiness of God on display. He is just and righteous to strike down those who look upon his holiness, who looked upon the ark, who is able to stand before him. And if they would have known the scriptures as they ought to have known, they would know if they would just call out to him for his mercy, he would forgive them. He would show them the very mercy they would call out to him for. There's evidence throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which they had. They should have known. But what's their answer? Get him away from us. You see, their answer, their solution is the solution all of us in the darkness of our hearts are tempted to believe is how we ought to respond to God when he threatens judgment against us. Put distance between God and us. In the last day, that's what men will do. If you look at Revelation chapter 6, when Jesus returns in judgment, Chapter 6, Revelation 6.15 says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Get away from him. Who can stand before him? Flee from him. But brothers and sisters... The good news of the gospel is that when we ask the question, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, we have an answer. And the answer is Jesus. He can stand before God. And the good news is that he stands in our place. 
and we are joined to him. We are his brothers and sisters, and we are co-heirs with Christ. And so because of the righteous life of Jesus that is given to us, that is imputed to us, we can stand with him before the Holy Lord because he has taken the wrath that we deserve. He has taken the punishment. He has taken the judgment in our place so that therefore we don't have to separate ourselves from God. We don't have to run from him. We don't have to hide in caves and call for the mountains to fall on us. We don't have to send him away. Instead, Hebrews 4.16 says to us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, the answer to all of us this morning, when we meditate on the judgment of God and when you are tempted to run for him because of that reality, the Bible says, do the opposite. Run to him. Run to the cross. Run to Jesus who says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come find rescue and redemption in me. Let us with confidence, because of the finished work of Christ, draw near to the throne of grace. We do not have to keep ourselves at a distance. You see, they had the ark of God in their presence. He was there, the symbolic, powerful presence of God among them, and even that did not change their hearts. It is the good news of Jesus that transforms us. It is the power of the Spirit that awakens our hearts to run after Jesus. No one pursues the one who sits in judgment over them unless God awakens us and says, our judge is also our Savior, so that we can run to him for salvation. Now listen, we often, we often have to wait to fully apply the truth of God's word to our lives. But this morning, we're going to get to apply this almost immediately because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray in a minute. And then we're going to enter into the Lord's Supper together. And I want to say to you that what we're doing in the Lord's Supper has striking similarities to what occurred when the presence of God was among his people when the Ark of the Covenant returned to Beth Shemesh. You see, they treated God and the things of God flippantly. And so God brought judgment on them. And we often think of God as the, the God of the Old Testament, right? He's the God of wrath. That's not who he is. But, but after our praying a moment, we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and remind ourselves of God's instructions to us about the Lord's table. And in 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to be reminded that the Corinthians, because they were partaking of the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner, some of them were ill and some of them have died. That God literally struck people down because they didn't handle the things of God in a spirit of reverence and with the holiness that it deserves. So you might be thinking, why in the world are you telling me this, Jonathan? None of us are going to want to dare come to the table if that's the consequence. And I say it to you because he invites us to come, not to distance ourselves, but to run to Jesus and to be reminded of his broken body and his spilled blood where he laid down his life in our place. So the answer to the threat of God's judgment is not to run from him, it's to run to him. And we get to do that very thing as we partake of the broken bread and the juice symbolizing his spilled blood this morning. Let's pray together. Father, I pray even now that you would prepare our hearts to come before your table. Father, we have been reminded that you are a just and righteous God. And Father, I pray that all of us have just had our, our gratitude increase this morning for you giving us what we don't deserve, that you reached into our sin-stained, darkened hearts, that you removed our heart of stone and you gave us a heart of flesh, that you gave sight to our blind eyes, the, the light of the gospel shone in our hearts to awaken us to the realities of who you are. 
Father, you accomplish what no amount of proof or evidence could ever accomplish within us. You showed us the glories of Christ and convinced us that he is worthy of all praise and adoration and glory and that he has died in our place and saved us from our sins. Father, we are so thankful for the abundant grace that you've shown us. And so, Father, even now I pray that you would be at work in us preparing to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and to rest in these good gospel promises this morning. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.